Hello, hello. Okay, everybody, find your seat. All the introverted people are really uncomfortable. I know all you extroverts, you could talk for, for hours and days on end. Well, we're getting close here to being finished in 1 Peter, our study in 1 Peter, and uh, we're, we're coming to the end, but we got a few, more, a few more weeks. Let's pray together, and we'll look at our text. Father, thank you for your goodness to us. Thank you for your grace. As we have, have thought about Jesus, uh, we, we recognize that uh, we are uh, desperately in need. And uh, Father, your grace in not leaving us in our sin, but sending Jesus to take the, the penalty and punishment for us, Father, becoming a, a curse for us in order that we might be admitted in, not as, as enemies to be judged, but as sons and daughters. And Father, we know, as Jesus said in John 5, that, <clears throat> that we have eternal life even now, that because of what Christ has done, we are your children even now. And as we thought about in 1 Peter 1, that that, that is a living hope that we have, uh, our inheritance protected by your sovereignty as we are protected. And so Father, we say thank you. And we say it with our words But Father, we want to say it more with our lives. As we think about Jesus and what he has accomplished for us, Father, we want to give ourselves to you, to worship you with our lives, as Paul says. So Father, help us. Help us as we look at your word today. As we consider what it says, what Peter is saying uh, for us, we pray that you would help us to be obedient, Father, to persevere in faith amidst difficulty. So we ask for your help. We pray that you would speak to us through your spirit. Would you take a few moments quietly, don't say anything out loud, but just ask God to speak to your heart this morning. And then if you would just take a few moments and pray for me, pray that God would speak through me. Father, we need your help. I need your help. Acknowledge, Father, that I am inadequate apart from your spirit working. And so I pray that you would speak through me. Pray that you would help me. And we ask, Father, that we might leave today a little different than when we came in, as your spirit works through your word in us. So we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. I don't know if you've ever noticed how your vision for the future, what you, what you see in the future, how that impacts the way that you live in the, in the present. Uh, for instance, maybe you have a holiday planned. 
uh, for two weeks or three weeks down the road. If you're anything like me, if you have a holiday planned and you can see that holiday coming, you kind of shut down, don't you, about two weeks before that. Uh, Because you see it coming and your vision of that holiday, it impacts what you do in the present. Or if you're a student, you're facing into exams and you know those exams are coming, you can see them right down the road, how it adds, it tends to add uh, stress or anxiety to your present because you see those things coming. Maybe you're a student and you don't feel that. Maybe we should talk. Maybe you should take it a little more seriously. But most students do anyway. I remember kind of the opposite of that. I remember when I was in university and by the time I was down to like one exam left, uh, I could see just that, that one exam that I had left, how my mind just checked out. And I was like, I can't wait to pack my car up and just get on the road and leave, you know, leave this place, you know. Our vision of the future impacts what we do in the present. But here's what else you probably know. If you are going through a difficulty in the present, it can cloud your vision of the future. If you're going through something in the present, in the here and now, sometimes that can can fog up your vision of what you know and what you believe is coming uh, in terms of Christ and his return. Uh, Peter, in our verses today, is wrapping up this second major section that he began back in chapter 2, verses 11. There's a, there's a key word that gets used a couple of times, beloved. So in chapter 2, beloved enters this second section, and we're going to see it again uh, next week in 4, verse 12, where he enters into a final section. And he's continuing his argument in these verses that a clear vision of our future and our future hope is what gets us through our present difficulties, our present trials that we face. And that vision for the future, it also empowers us in the present to live differently, to live the way he calls us to live. And so in these few verses, uh, we want to think about this morning how Peter calls us to live today in light of what is true about tomorrow. How is Peter calling us to live today in light of what is true for us about tomorrow and then to think about the reason why? So just as we start, Peter has this this statement at the very beginning in verse 7 He says, the end of all things is at hand. The end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be self-controlled and sober-minded. Peter wants us to understand in verse 7 that the future and our sense and vision of the future shapes our present. And so he says in verse 7, the end of all things is at hand. And what he means by that is that the the, the stage has been set and the outcome has been secured through Christ's resurrection. Just turn back in your your text there to chapter 1, verse 3. In in verse 3 in chapter 1, he says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope 
through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. In chapter 3, verse 22, he talks about Christ, well, in verse 18, talks about Christ has suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God. And then down at the end of verse 21, through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels and authorities and powers having been subjected to him. Now, when he says that the end of all things is at hand, the end of all things is a pretty bold claim, isn't it? He, he means all things, everything that has gone before. The end of all things is at hand. It's emphasized in the Greek that all things are in view. All things and the future of all things have been settled because of what Christ has done. Everything has been accomplished. Christ has been vindicated and he's been exalted. He's been raised up. Again, in the light of what we read in chapter 1 verse 3 and chapter 3 verse 22, his resurrection has inaugurated these last days in which we now just wait for his return. Where we wait for his return to take possession of what is already his. So because of the resurrection, we know that the end is just around the corner. The end, the deliverance, that final deliverance that God has promised is just around the corner because Christ has been raised. And that end, as Peter talks about it in verse 7, that, that end is a period of time in which we now live. Everything's been accomplished. Christ has been exalted. His return is certain. His return is certain. And this is what we remember in communion, first Sunday of every month, when we celebrate communion together. This is what we remember, that because of the death and resurrection of Christ, our future in Him is certain. The end of all things, the deliverance that God has in store for those who are his children is certain because of what Christ has accomplished. And so we remember that when we partake of communion. If he's come once, if he's done this, if he's been raised up, then he will come again to fulfill all that he's promised. Peter says the end of all things, he says, is at hand. It is near Again, the table has been set. There's nothing left that needs to be accomplished. Like if you were having guests over for a meal and you had prepared the food, you had set the table, and the only thing you're doing now is waiting for them to arrive. His return is certain and his return is imminent. It can come at any moment because everything has been accomplished. The end of all things is at hand, is near. And that mindset focused in on Christ's certain and imminent return governs how we think and live in this world. That future certainty, that future hope that we possess becomes the lens through which now we look at everything that we see around us. 
It all gets, uh, it all gets interpreted and understood through that lens of the certain hope of Christ's return. The end of all things is at hand. And so Peter's instruction is to be in control of our thoughts. To be in control of our thoughts. Now that may sound like a small thing, but you know what it's like for your thoughts to be out of control, don't you? And so Peter's call here is to tell ourselves, to be clear to ourselves in our minds, the end of all things is near. Because when that is clear in our thinking, we look and we live differently in the present. So he says, be self-controlled, be sober-minded. Now, he said this before. If you look back in chapter 2, verse 13. Sorry, that's not the right one. In chapter 1, verse 13. Therefore, he says, prepare your minds for action, being sober-minded. Set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. See, there's this constant battle within us to view our present situation, to view the world around us through this lens of tomorrow, of our future hope that we have in Christ. That's a battle, isn't it? But it's a battle that Peter calls us to fight. The end of all things is at hand. And that is to govern the way that we think in this life. And the implication of of the end being near is that we are not to be rooted in this world. We're not to be rooted uh, in this world. Instead, Peter uh, is calling them and, and he calls us to live our todays in the light of tomorrow. To live out today as we look to the future of Christ. Jonathan Edwards uh, the old 18th century, he was practically a Puritan, but he was an American Puritan. And he made a list of resolutions in his life, things that he wanted to live by. And one of those was resolved never to do anything which I should be afraid to do if I expected it would not be above an hour before I should hear the last trumpet. He wanted to live his present in the light of what was future the return, the certain return of Christ. And that has implications. Living in that way has implications for what we pursue, doesn't it? See, this is a call here in verse 7. This is a call for us to fix our eyes on Jesus, for us to, to focus our gaze on Him. Think about Hebrews chapter 12. Hebrews chapter 12, verses 1 to 3, where the author says, Keeping our eyes fixed on Jesus. There's this call to pursue Him as we look to Him. And that gives shape to the way we live today. So we don't give ourselves to, to, uh, we don't find our sense of, of purpose or worth in the things of this world. Because we recognize there's something new coming. Now, this doesn't mean that we withdraw from the world, does it? It doesn't mean that we withdraw from the world around us. Being rooted in something is a little bit different than than just living in the world. So we are here for a purpose. Uh, We're here for a reason. So Peter's not suggesting uh, that 
the things of this world have no meaning to us as believers. Rather, he's suggesting that they have a new meaning in the light of what is to come, in the light of Christ's certain and near return. The call here is to reinterpret our identity, to understand our identity and our worth and our purpose in light of what is ultimate, what is true of us tomorrow is what really roots us in today. And that's through the lens uh, of the end of all things in Christ. And we'll, we'll see further down as we get in the, in the verses, we'll see the certain and near end of all things actually propels us out into the world around us. So in, in light of the fact that the end is near, verse 7 Peter's going to highlight four things that we should find ourselves doing. And these are not all couched as imperatives, but they're all used as commands. These are four things, in light of the fact that the end is near, these are four things that are to be true about us today as we fix our eyes on tomorrow. So let's think about these four imperatives here, these four commands And in all of them, we think about Peter calling us to look like Jesus as we live together today. So let's look at these. The the first thing he says is that, that being in control of our thinking, in light of the end, we are to be people of prayer. People of prayer. So look at verse 7 again. Again, we're framing it with this phrase, the end of all things is at hand. Therefore, Peter says... Be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. Sober-minded and self-controlled are both attached to this call for prayer. It's a call to pray as we rightly understand the, the brevity of this world that we find ourselves in. So understanding that, that this world is short, this world is, is brief. It's a brief moment compared to what is to come. That frames and calls us to pray. It calls us to be people of prayer. We pray. uh, It's not a a fatalism that says, oh, well, the end's coming, whatever. No, the, the, the reality of Christ's return calls us to action. And specifically the action of praying. So what do we pray? Well, we pray for ourselves and one another. That God might, uh, might do good through us. That we might persevere in unity in light of the present difficulties that we face. We pray that we might root ourselves in what is really fundamentally true about ourselves. And we pray for non-believers. That God might open their hearts in these days of opportunity. Living in light of the end, end means that we are clear on the fact that hell is real. That if deliverance is coming, it necessarily means that judgment is coming for those who don't know Jesus. And so we pray for the gospel to go forth. We pray for people to repent and to believe while there is still time. We don't lose sight of this mission that we find ourselves called to. And so we pray, understanding the brevity of this world, we pray. 
Not only do we pray, look at verse 8. He says, above all, keep loving one another earnestly since love covers a multitude of sins. We're called to an earnest love for one another. And so this is a call to a love that persists and not only persists, but grows in spite of difficulty. The call here to keep on loving earnestly implies that this love is to be constant even as it is something that we constantly work at and we constantly strive for. And understand, this isn't a, just a call to an emotionally intense kind of love. That, that's, that's kind of become how we define love today in our culture. It's not about an emotional intensity. It's about an action of giving ourselves to one another. And so Peter's command here is to see that kind of love uh, continue and grow. To see an increase of this action-oriented love for one another. Now that's not easy, is it? It's not easy. We, We face outward pressure, right? We face pressure from the outside that gets exerted on us that that pulls us away from that. But we know we also uh, face negative experiences with one another that make that difficult. And that's why we're called to pursue it earnestly. It becomes something that we work at. Uh, It takes work to to end this downward spiral of relational back and forth, tit for tat. It takes work to to arrest that kind of uh, of relational uh, fall, doesn't it? But we work at it. And this is what Peter means when he says that this kind of love covers a multitude of sins. Peter's not making a theological statement about atonement as if, uh, if we do this, then sins are forgiven vertically. That's not what he's, he's doing. He's thinking most likely of Proverbs 10, 12. And here's what Proverbs 10, 12 says. Hatred stirs up strife, but love covers all offenses. In other words, uh, hatred uses others' sins against them. You ever done that? You ever used someone's sin and offense against them, held it over their head? Proverbs says, hatred uses other sins against them. But love does the opposite. It overlooks the offense. It overlooks the offense. Now, this isn't a call to, to kind of cover up or hide gross wrongdoing. That's not what, what Peter is, is saying. It's a call, though, for us to absorb most of the wrongs that we experience at the hands of our brothers and sisters. That's what Jesus did. Jesus absorbed sin, didn't he? In Matthew 18, verses 21 and 22, Peter comes to him, you know the story, Peter comes to him and says, Lord, how often will my brother sin against me and I forgive him? As many as seven times. Peter thought he was being generous. Seven times, how's that? Jesus said, I don't say seven, but 77 times. We forgive as we have been forgiven, is Jesus' point, isn't it? 
1 Corinthians 13, that, that famous chapter on love. Love is patient and kind, doesn't envy and boast. It's not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own ways, not irritable or resentful, doesn't rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Proverbs 17, 9 says, Whoever covers an offense seeks love, but he who repeats a matter separates close friends. Proverbs 19, 11, Good sense makes one slow to anger, and it is his glory to overlook an offense. Peter's calling here in this verse for the forbearance and the patience to overlook an offense as we're able so that the difficulties we face with one another don't reach a boiling point and a crisis moment. You ever watched a documentary or a film about mountain climbing? Guys like climbing Mount Everest or something and one of them slips and there's nothing to stop their fall. They're just sliding down the side of this mountain and the, the only hope they have is that they could somehow roll over and take their, their little axe and jam it in the ice as they, and as they slow, slowly, slowly, slowly stop, they're okay. And that's what Peter calls us to. As our relationships tend to descend, you know, go down the slope of trouble, covering over the offense is us sticking the, uh, the ice axe in the ice that we might stop the descent before it blows up. And this love, Peter says, is above all. It's fundamental, this kind of love. It's fundamental to us living out Christ's victory here in this present age. Our witness as a, an alternate society among the culture around us is worthless if we are not a people of love. If we don't know how to forgive one another as Jesus forgave us, we're no different than people out there. Look at verse 9. Fourth thing, this follows from what he's just said. He says, show hospitality to one another without grumbling. This is a call to gracious hospitality even when it's inconvenient, even when it's difficult. And maybe more so then in Peter's day than in our day, Hospitality was necessary both inside and outside the local church. Believers would have been expected, given the nature of, of inns and, and, and lodgings. There were no four-star hotels or, uh, you know, back in, in this day, inns were kind of dodgy places. Uh, I think the Tenardiers and uh, uh, whatever that book was that I never finished uh, Les Miserables, that's it. Uh, ends were, ends were places of, of, of disrepute. They were, they were, they, you didn't want to find yourself having to stay uh, in an inn. And so Peter would call those believers certainly to offer uh, accommodation to visiting believers. But Peter directs this hospitality. It's not just to outsiders. He says show hospitality to one another. Peter directs this, this internally, I think, uh, here in this particular verse. Generosity towards one another in the fellowship. 
Again, in Peter's day, most churches didn't have buildings. And so if the church is going to assemble together, it's going to be in someone's home, which means someone's going to have to clean their house. They're going to have to get the tea ready. They're going to have to get the, the biscuits and, you know, they're going to get the chairs together, you know, this kind of thing. And that, that's tiring because they've got work as well, you know, and then they've got kids maybe running around. And so, so hospitality and showing hospitality is not easy, but it becomes necessary as an act of love in the body. And I remember, you know, we, we would, and many of us would open up our homes for, for Bible studies coming together. And that's not always easy. But Peter says, show hospitality to one another. And he says to do this without grumbling. Uh, that word grumbling, uh, it's behind the scenes talk. It's complaining. You know, so someone needs you to do something. And you say, oh yeah, I'll do that. And then you turn and you talk to your friend. And you say, can did you see the cheek on him? I mean, how, 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 why would he ask me to do that? That's grumbling, right? That, that's, it's behind the scenes talk and complaining. And Peter says, show hospitality. Be generous without doing that. Just do it. It's to be done in the spirit of love that he's just described. Loving one another earnestly. So hospitality here is a warm, open-heartedness that leads us to being open-handed with the things that we've been given. It's a warm, open-heartedness that leads us to being open-handed with what we've been given. And that's what Peter calls us to. That this place might be a place of refuge. A place where people can come and say, hey, look, I've got a need here. Or uh, where where we feel uh, a kind of generosity with one another. That gives without asking anything in return. That gives out of a joy that says, look, I've been given all things. So surely I will give to you. And finally, again, verse 7, in the end of all things is at hand. So finally, uh, in light of the end that is at hand, that is near, uh, Peter calls on us to allow God's grace to flow through us as we serve one another. Verse 10, as each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. Whoever speaks is one who speaks oracles of God. Whoever serves is one who serves by the strength that God supplies. God has given each believer a gift of grace. It's not something that we build up in ourselves. It's something, it's an act of grace in giving us something, a gift of grace so that his grace might flow through us to others. Now, I want to just give you four thoughts here as I I look at verses 10 and 11. First of all, notice that Peter says, as each has received a gift. Each one of us, each believer has received something with which they are called to serve others. Paul said it like this in in, in 1 Corinthians 12. To each is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. And then he went on to enumerate some of, or to, to list out some of those different giftings. Well, what's been received? Look at what he says. As each has received a gift, use it to serve as good stewards of God's grace. So what each has received is a stewardship of God's grace. 
In other words, God has entrusted each of us with a gift of his grace to be used in order to grace other people, to grace those around us. So spiritual gifts aren't given so that we can kind of pat ourselves on the back and say, hey, look, I got this one. What do you got? Ah, You go over there. No, no. Spiritual gifts are, are, are given to us that we might, that God's grace might flow through us as we manage them, as we manage them in service to others. So each has been given a gift. We steward that gift for the sake of others. And then notice what he says. He says, uh, as each has received As each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. The gifts that God has given, the gifts of God's grace are uh, come in various forms. Peter's going to talk about two, speaking and serving. And I think he's thinking generally, he's thinking very broadly about these gifts of of grace. Paul Uh, talks a little bit more specifically in the places that he talks about spiritual gifts. But even there, I don't think those lists of spiritual gifts are exhaustive. The Spirit gives all kinds of of gifts, gifts of grace that are intended to be used to serve other people. The point is that these varied gifts are all to have an outward focus. They're all to be focused outward in serving one another. So spiritual gifts, as God gives them, are never like stacks where we think, oh, well, I've got this gift. And having this gift makes me closer to God than you if you just have this gift. Spiritual gifts are like columns that when placed side by side support one another and support the body. And they're varied. And the reason they're varied is because God's grace is varied. The fact that the gifts are, 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 are varied highlights the multifaceted grace of God. And incidentally, if you'll remember back to chapter 1, Peter is writing this book to people who are encountering varied trials. And so the various trials that we face in this world are combated in the body by these various gifts of grace that God has given to each of us. And so as each of us exercise our varied gifts of grace, the body is strengthened as a series of columns makes a building strong and able to withstand a great force. We are called here to give all that we are in service to one another. He says again, I think generally, whoever speaks as one who speaks the oracles of God, whoever serves as one who serves by the strength that God supplies. And I don't know if you caught it when I read that, but who is the source of these gifts? It's God. The one who speaks speaks out of the revelation that God has given in his word. The one who serves, serves out of the strength that God has given. 
It is God's grace that flows through us in order to minister to one another. Speaking and acting generally, I think, represent here the the, the fullness of everything that we do. So in everything that we do, we seek the good of others in serving as instruments of God's grace. That's what Peter calls us to. That's why we talk about the normal means of grace that God gives us. He's given his word whereby he normally ministers his grace to us. He's given us prayer where he normally ministers his grace to us. And he's given us the body where he normally ministers grace to us. Which is why you need to be a part of the body. (laughs) Because if you're a believer, you have a gift of grace And it's not called to stay with you. It's called to flow through you so you can minister to your brothers and sisters. And you need to receive the gifts of God's grace as your brothers and sisters allow God's grace to flow through them into your life. Well, I don't want us to miss here the reason and the the purpose that Peter has in mind in calling us to these things. I mean, this is all great. But we could do this all better in heaven, couldn't we? Unencumbered by sin. But there's a reason that we live this way here and now in light of the end. And the goal is that God's reputation might be enhanced as we lift up Jesus by emulating him, by looking like him in front of the world around us. Look at where Peter concludes this doxology Whoever serves is one who serves by the strength that God supplies in order that, in everything. And I think he means there in in doing all this speaking and all this serving, that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. To him, I think to Jesus, belong glory and dominion forever and ever. See, look. As we look like Jesus in here, in front of the world out there, the Lord Jesus is exalted. The Lord Jesus is magnified and made much of. The the mission of God in exalting his son, Jesus, is accomplished as we picture what Jesus is like in here. This You know, Jesus revealing what God is like, this self-giving love that that is ultimately pictured and demonstrated in the cross. God has invested everything in Jesus. God has given all authority to Jesus. And so as Jesus is exalted, God is exalted. And so as we look like Jesus here, by the strength that God gives, a light gets shined on the gospel. And in shining a light on the gospel, the goal is that people out there might see and be drawn. That we might be able to exalt Jesus in their lives as well. Again, Peter's focus in this book has been missional. It's been, look, live this way so that people might see and so that people might believe as they hear what Jesus is like. So what is Peter calling us to do? As we fix our eyes on Jesus, 
We strive to look like Jesus so that we can point people to Jesus. As we fix our eyes on Jesus, the end of all things is at hand. As we fix our eyes on Jesus, we strive to look like Jesus so that we can point people to Jesus. So church, with your eyes on the end of all things and the hope that that brings, let us pray with insight. Let us work at loving one another well. Let us be generous with our things. And let us serve one another out of what we've been given to serve with. And then let's go point a world facing judgment to the only one who can rescue them as we do it. Now, I don't know where that hits you today. Maybe one of those four things you feel like, I'm not really doing that very well. Maybe you need to key in on one of those four things. Maybe you feel like, you know, my focus on the end has been clouded by what's going on in my present. Maybe you need to kind of pray that God would clear away the fog so that you can be reminded on a daily basis that the end of all things is at hand. Christ's return is imminent and it is certain. Maybe today you've not trusted in Jesus. Understand, this is the day of opportunity. Today is the day of opportunity. We're not guaranteed tomorrow. We're not guaranteed our next breath. And so listen, if you've been putting off placing your trust in Jesus, understand you may not have another opportunity. And so maybe today's the day you need to see the cross for what it is. The payment of your curse. The payment of your penalty for sin. And maybe you need to place your trust in Christ, that he died so that you could live wherever you are today. As we pray and as we close in a song, I want you to think about what is is the next step that God might be calling me to? Let's pray together. Father, indeed, as we think about the end of all things being at hand, being near, God, truly our hearts are full of joy. How often we have cried out, would you come, Lord Jesus? We long for the deliverance that you promise us at the return of our Savior. And Father, I pray that you would help us to view everything around us in light of that certain end. Father, that it might shape the way we think about who we are. And Father, that it might shape what we do in this world. And Father, as we seek to fix our eyes on Jesus, as we strive to look like Jesus, would you help us then, Father, to point other people to Jesus? We thank you. We praise you. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.